What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. One, two, three. Today we are continuing the Torch Slayer series. I've spent quite a bit of time on this case because I wanted to answer one simple question. Was the Torch Slayer a serial killer? The basic definition of a serial killer is someone who commits a series of murders, often with no apparent motive and typically following a predictive behavior pattern. Because of how things were handled, you probably never heard of the Torch Slayer. And if you had, you only knew of his one victim. But today we are continuing to take a deep dive into this crazy story. This story first took place in February of 1928 in Bernardsville, New Jersey. A woman named Margaret Brown was murdered and set ablaze. Although the detectives followed many clues about who had killed this poor woman, the killer escaped justice and his name was never found out. In the last episode, we covered the horrific murder scene of Mildred Campbell. She was found in the early morning hours just one year later in Cranford, New Jersey. It took months to identify her, but now the police have a solid lead onto what may have happened. They know of her husband, Henry Colin Campbell, and they are currently on the search for him. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Forgotten True Crime, the podcast where we investigate true crime cases forgotten through time. We examine each crime independently of other people's opinions. We search out prime sources through police records, witness statements, news reports, and much, much more. Please subscribe to the podcast so when we have new episodes, you will be the first to know. You can also check out our webpage at truecrime.blog. There we post each story and some of the reports we've gathered for each case. We have a Facebook and YouTube page as well. You can find us under Forgotten True Crime. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Detectives from Cranford started doing some research on Dr. Henry Colin Campbell. It turned out things were not as what they appeared with the good doctor. For one, he wasn't even a doctor. He was an engineer. Two plainclothed detectives started tracking down where Mr. Campbell had lived. They visited a couple of previous residences, and they were directed to a new apartment he had actually just purchased. The apartment was in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which was just a few minutes' drive from Cranford. When detectives knocked on the door, they were surprised that it was not Mr. Campbell who answered the door, but it was Mrs. Campbell. She told the detectives that her and her husband had been married for several years. Her name was... Miss Rosalie McReady. She married Henry Cullen Campbell in 1913, and they actually had three children together. She told the detectives that her husband should be home later after returning from work. The detectives 
quickly excuse themselves and started devising a plan. You see, they had actually spoke to several people that day while they were looking for Mr. Campbell. There was a genuine chance that this information might make its way back to him before he got home. So they decided it would be best to get as many police officers as possible, and they wanted to watch the apartment from all sides. Each officer placed themselves in or around the apartment building. They did not wear uniforms because they did not want to spook Mr. Campbell in case he was on to them and knew that they may be on the lookout. That evening, a man arrived at the apartment building. It didn't seem... He didn't seem to be on the alert. But as he walked in, he headed towards Mr. Campbell's apartment. The detectives followed him closely behind, and before he was aware, he was stopped at his apartment and was immediately confronted by the detectives. They asked if he was Mr. Campbell, and he said that he was, and then they arrested him on the spot. They searched Henry Campbell and found a loaded pistol on him. Almost at once, the man looked utterly defeated and broken. They quickly returned him to the station where they placed him in an interview room. With Mr. Campbell in custody, detectives took this chance to search his home for any evidence. When they entered, they found his wife and three children in the home. All of them were worried about Henry. Nothing seemed to be out of place in all the common rooms. However, when they went into Henry's room, they found something interesting. Henry was an avid collector of teddy bears and kind of odd ones at that, some oddities or defects. He had many dolls throughout the room, and also he had very technical engineering books as well. Even though all of this was very bizarre to the detectives, it just meant that Henry Campbell was different. That's not a crime. Once detectives arrived at the station, it was within just a couple of hours, Henry Colin Campbell started confessing to the murder of Mildred Mowry. He started from the beginning and explained how he got to this point. You see, Henry Colin Campbell was an intelligent man. He became a civil engineer, which is no easy feat. When he was working, he was always doing pretty well for himself. He also went to school to become a medical doctor. But life seemed to get in the way and he never finished medical school. However, Henry started a medical clinic in his home at one point. He felt he was trained enough to help others and try to do just that until the state came in and shut him down. Henry told the detectives that he had fallen on hard times. He had hurt himself when he was younger. They put him on morphine and he quickly became dependent on it. Over time, he needed larger and larger doses. He turned to hard drugs and put himself into financial ruin. He had just bought a new home and was struggling to make ends meet. So he began to come up with ways that he could make some quick money. He came up with a plan to find someone through a dating agency. He would trick them into falling in love with him. 
they would then get married and he would steal their money. This mostly worked as planned for him when he met Mildred. She quickly fell in love with him. He told her exactly what she wanted to hear and promised a future with him. From previous experience, Henry knew that if he were to take Mildred to another state to get married, they would not know that he was already married at the time. So they did just that. Once they did get married, they opened a joint bank account, and Mildred placed over $1,000 in it. Henry had drained that account quickly. Even so, Mildred didn't realize that she had been swindled. She didn't believe that Henry could have done such a thing. So when Mildred demanded to see him and told him that she was coming to find him, Henry arranged for them both to meet in hopes he could calm her down. But when they did, this just led to a confrontation where Mildred demanded to go to the home that he promised her. Henry could not do this because his house was where his family was. So that night, they drove through town. Henry told the detectives that he confessed to Mildred what he had done, and he told her that he was struggling and was married. This enraged Mildred. She demanded that he take her to his house immediately. So he agreed. But in truth, this only confirms in Henry's mind what he must do. He had to get rid of Mildred. So they drove into the night. Mildred eventually fell asleep. They reached a long stretch of road where no one could hear them. Henry stopped the car. He climbed into the back seat and pressed a pistol to the back of Mildred's head. Before she woke up, he pulled the trigger. Mildred was instantly killed. Henry then pulled Mildred out of the car. He siphoned gas from the tank and poured it all over Mildred. He lit her on fire and left her to be discovered in the middle of the road. The detectives asked Henry since he was cooperating if he would reenact the murder for them, so they left no stone unturned. Detectives told Henry that in doing so, it would show cooperation and would be favorable for him when he was charged and sentenced for the crime. So, seeing that he had no other option, Henry agreed. Before they did anything else, the detectives started asking about the Margaret Brown case. There were so many similar things here that there was a real chance that Henry was behind that as well. But Henry denied any involvement in that crime. He told the detectives that he didn't know her and that he had nothing to do with it, even though the two crimes were so very similar. They questioned Henry about Margaret Brown's case for hours. They really, they just got nowhere. Detectives finally came to a conclusion that they had his confession on Mildred's case, and they had nothing that actually connected him to the other murder. And it seemed that he knew it. Right now, Henry would probably get life in prison for one murder. But if there were two murders, he would probably get the death penalty no matter what. So detectives went with what they could prove at this point. 
If they found anything that would connect Henry with the murder of Margaret Brown during the investigation, they would then pursue that at that time. The day after his arrest, police and prosecutors took Henry to the scene of the crime. Step by step, Henry calmly walked everyone through what he had done. Police even brought Henry's car to the scene so that he could show exactly how he crept out of the car, retrieved his pistol, and then shot Mildred Mowry through the top of her head. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off, my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Miss Campbell was distraught about what was happening to her husband. She refused to believe the charges that were put against him. And when she was allowed to visit, she flat out asked if any of this was true. When Henry told her that it was, she broke down and cried. But she never left his side. Miss Campbell told her husband to fight the charges, get an attorney, and they could beat this together. Some of this seemed to get through because it was then he had done just that. When he had counsel, Henry's attorney began working on an insanity plea. They planned on using Henry's many dolls at his home as proof that he was not all there in the head. It's worth noting here that at this time, we know of two marriages. Henry was married to Rosalia McCready, now Campbell, who he had three children with. He also married Mildred Mowry. It was during all this press of what was going on that an attorney stepped forward to tell of another wife he had married before Rosalia, which Henry never divorced. This wife sued him and won over $5,000 for his actions years earlier. It was also found out that in another state, he had swindled some other elderly women out of money by dating them and almost marrying them. As these facts about Henry Colin Campbell came out, it was also revealed that this man, who was now known to have gone by many different names was not actually Henry Colin Campbell. He was actually born Henry Colin Close. This was something that Henry himself also confessed to. After this news came out, everyone seemed torn on how to address Henry. Uh, to make things easier for the podcast, we will continue to call him Henry Colin Campbell. This is where getting documents and materials became a little bit more complex. I had to do a lot of double research just to see if I could find him under multiple names. I was up to the task, though. When the news that Henry's actual last name was close, detectives were quick to link him to a sordid past. You see, when he was a younger man, Henry was out west trying to make it on his own. Through our investigation, we found that he made his way from New York to San Francisco somewhere around 1889. 
He took several letters of recommendations with him, and that assisted him with finding a job. When he arrived, he became a bookkeeper for Mr. Brohe. This is a man who made clothing in San Francisco. Henry handled his accounts and made orders for the business, but it didn't take long for Mr. Brohe to get an odd feeling about Henry, and he decided that it would be best to let him go. This caught Henry off guard, and he very quickly turned to a life of crime. He first contacted Mr. Bohe's clients and told them that if they paid him up front, he would do the same work that they were paying Mr. Bohe, but for half the price. He then took a check from one of the clients of his previous employer and cashed it at the bank. He forged his name on the check in order to cash it. He also stole several silk vests, which were worth quite a bit of money, and pawned them for almost nothing. He was arrested and sent to prison for forgery. Within a year, Henry's father was able to work out a deal. He was a principal of a prominent school in New York and was quite wealthy. He helped get his son a pardon from prison and he quickly ushered Henry back to New York to keep an eye on him. Henry was now back into trouble, and this time, he didn't have anyone coming to save him. Henry's defense was not to defend himself or his actions. As the trial came closer and closer, they had him examined by several different doctors in several different ways. They were trying to explain medically why he murdered Mildred. They wanted to show that this was something that was out of his control. He accepted that he had committed the crime, but he thought this would be a way to not spend the rest of his life in prison. It was a risk, though. He was putting the decision in the hands of a jury who may or may not be receptive to these kinds of things. New Jersey was known at this time for its swift justice. They did not wait or waste anyone's time with the justice system. On June 10th, 1929, they began jury selection. And well, 20 minutes later, they had 12 men ready for the jury. This is the quickest I've ever seen a jury selected and it doesn't, honestly, not fair. <laughs> so, just want to point that out. The next day, the trial started, and it was a fight from the very beginning. The state first used Henry's own words against him to set the scene on how he treated the women in his life. No, they did not use a confession at this point. They used the letters that they found written to Mildred when she was alive. Many of the letters were loving and caring. Henry told Mildred that she would not come and stay with him in New York because he was building their house and he was not set up for her at the current time. But in reality, he was actually just living with his wife and kids. In later letters, he asked for things like money or jewelry. Mildred actually at one point sent him some diamond earrings, which he quickly pawned. They were worth thousands of dollars. Detectives knew this because he actually included it in one of the letters that he wrote to Mildred. 
In later letters, he was mean and forceful in telling Mildred that she would just have to wait because they were struggling and he needed to focus on getting this house built. The state was showing that Henry was planning on all of this all along, knowing that the eventual outcome might be Mildred's own death. At the end of the day, the state did something that surprised many people. They rested. This meant that the next day would be Henry's chance to present his case of insanity. The state did not bring up any experts to testify against this at this point. So, really, Henry had free reign on this line of thought. Or, well, so they thought. Henry Campbell spent a lot of time the next day on the stand. He told his side of things about getting into an argument with Mildred, how he lost his mind and killed her while she was sleeping. He was carefully led by his attorney through the entire story, so he said all of the right things. When it was the state's turn to follow up, They asked Henry if he remembered confessing to what had happened and writing a very detailed statement that did not state all of the things that he was now saying. Henry told him that he remembered writing the confession but could not remember putting all of the details down. In fact, he seemed to forget a lot of things because through further questioning, his typical answer was, I cannot remember. The next day, on June 13, 1929, the jury received the case, and it took several hours for them to review everything. Just before 4 p.m., they came back with a verdict. They found Henry Colin Campbell guilty of murder. They also did not recommend sparing him from the death penalty. The judge's sentencing was death. Henry could not believe that this was the outcome. If he had just accepted it all and did not go with the trial, he could have worked out a deal of life in prison. Over the course of the next year, Henry Campbell fought and appealed the sentence, but it was rejected at every turn. He was also fighting for his life in another way. His kidneys were failing and the state's medicine was not helping him very well. On April 18, 1930, Henry Colin Campbell was led into the death chamber at the New Jersey State Penitentiary. He was a shell of his former self. He could not stand on his own and was led to the chair, where he willingly sat down. As they strapped him down, the others who were to be put to death that night, could be heard shouting goodbye. But Henry never responded or gave any last statements. His last request was that he be cremated. After strapping him down, the executioner then flipped the switch, and three minutes later, Henry Colin Campbell was dead. We will never know if Henry Colin Campbell really was a serial killer. Margaret Brown's death was still open, but considered by many as solved. There may have been other victims as well. This was something that proved to be easy for Henry to do. Mildred was swindled so well that it was hard to think this was the very first time 
Henry had done something like this. I spent a lot of time looking at unsolved murders of that time frame in that area, and I could not say one way or the other if Henry could have been responsible for those or not. But these are the facts in both Mildred's and Margaret's cases. Both happened in the same state, just a year apart. The two towns are not far from one another. Both were believed to be marrying a doctor. In both cases, a blue car was seen in the area. In both cases, the women were of similar age, killed and then doused in gas and set on fire. The murders happened late at night, and both seemed to be done in such a way as to prevent the victim's identification. In both cases, the women were robbed of their money. Henry never confessed to killing Margaret Brown, because I believe that if he did, there was no escaping the electric chair. Even still, all of the things that tie him to Mildred's case also tie him to Margaret's. So yes, I do believe that he was either a serial killer or the makings of one. What do you think? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so when we have new episodes, you are the first to know. We also have a Facebook page, Forgotten True Crime, Oki Investigations. Let me know what you think of the series. I'll see you all next time. See ya. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.